This is a CNA podcast. Doors are closing. Hello and welcome to Work It. I'm Crispina Robert. And I'm Adrian Tan. Thanks for joining us. Adrian, do you remember your first job interview? What job you applied for? What did they ask you? How many people were in the room? Oh yeah, I remember it very, very clearly. It was a customer service job with Starhub when they first launched in Singapore. That was year 2000. I remember being whisked into a computer lab environment to do my typing test (laughs) with, I think, about five to six other people just to make sure that I can type well on the computer. (laughs) And thereafter, they actually put us into a mock customer service situation to test how well you interact with people. That was quite a jarring experience given that I just came out from army and know nothing better. Right, right. So I thought I'd share my experience with you. I wanted to be a journalist and back in the day, you had to sit for a writing test. It was something like a GP test and only if you passed and you got an interview. So there were three people in the room, two from HR and editor. I was 25. I had no experience. It was a pure gamble. I had nothing on my resume. The AI would not have picked me, let's just say. So I remember thinking that it was such an odd interview because by that time I was married And the interviewers asked me how I felt about working long hours because that's what a journalist does. I still remember her saying, you know, you will not make it for Saturday or Sunday dinners. Your husband's going to be upset with you. And I remember thinking, okay, this is kind of weird, a bit personal, right? And of course, on hindsight, I understood that that's the job. And those were some of the pain points. Have you ever been in a strange interview where they were asking you questions that you didn't really know where this was going? Oh, so many of them, especially the ones that I hear from my client's side as I used to run a recruitment business. Personally, I interviewed in an oil broking company. And during my second interview with, I think, the CEO or the chairman, he kept asking about my sister. I have no idea why. (laughs) And when that conversation is over, he started to point to the painting behind me and we just kept talking about the painting, nothing about the job itself. So he asked you about the sister and about the painting? Yes, maybe it's some kind of a test, which I obviously did not past. And from my client's side, a lot of very interesting stories. I know of the managing partner of an audit firm who will not hire people from Hua Chong because he comes from ACS. They have that schoolboy rivalry thing going on. Mm -hmm. And there's also another company who is a bit superstitious in horoscope, Chinese horoscope especially. So if you're from certain sign, you will either never get hired or even if you are from that side and you're working within the company, you can never be promoted because your horoscope clashed with the founder horoscope. Oh my. So that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about recruitment. It's the lifeblood of every organisation and the veins and arteries of hiring and processing applications are frankly at once complex and yet in a way well-oiled. But things have changed dramatically since Crispina and I were interviewed for our first jobs. In the old days, HR would go through a pile of applications, pick out who they thought met the basic requirements and then call up candidates for interviews. Today, you may get up to 300 applications just for one position and a group of people sifting through hundreds of CVs is just inefficient and sometimes inaccurate. So this is where artificial intelligence comes in. And you know what? When I was reading for this episode, it was fascinating. Many companies are using filtering technology. According to JobScan Research, 99% of Fortune 500 companies use an applicant tracking system. 
So it works in several different ways. Obviously, it's a bit too complicated for me. But from what I understand, AI shortlists candidates, for example, picking out keywords from their CVs. Those who make it through may be asked to play a personality game. And then there's the whole concept of a chatbot, which can ask you so-called knockout questions. And there's even a chatbot called Maya. And our guest today is Nina Alaksuri. She's the CEO of Sopa AI. Nina, who has an engineering degree, started in IT but soon moved into the HR space. She began her own recruitment firm in Delhi, but soon realised that traditional hiring practices were inefficient and prone to human error and bias. So she teamed up with a professor at NUS Business School and started with the use of AI in the recruitment space. And that's made her very successful indeed. She dials in from London. Welcome, Nina. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. So Nina, I assume you were hired for your first job. Do you remember that interview? Oh gosh, yes, I do. It's a very memorable company. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I was a management trainee at that point of time. I think I was asked like three questions and... Uh, um, Let me guess, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Those kinds <laughs> You are 100% right. And I must say, I got my first job probably because of a positive bias, Mm. right? There were not too many women engineers at that point of time. So I think they were just very excited to see a female STEM engineer, which again is not the right thing. I probably was a product of halo bias. Mm. But of course, I did a good job. So I sustained that job. I want to kind of share one anecdote which kind of changed the way I looked at life. It was when I was in my second job and I was in an IT company. I was doing sales. And I was pregnant with my second child without sounding very uh, arrogant. I was one of the star performers in the sales team. But I got this new boss. He one day called me and I started to feel a bit of a difference in the way he was treating me compared to my other colleagues and so on. And he called me and said, Nina, I don't think a pregnant woman looks good on the field. You can't socialize, you can't go out drinking. And I said, well, I anyways don't do that. So he said, yeah, it's more of a boys club. Why don't you think about it and take another role? That made such a huge impact on my psyche. And I was so disturbed by that. And I said, I'm a star performer and I'm being treated like this. Think about the other women who are either going through pregnancy or taking Mm. a break or whatever. So It's not just about seeing the kind of biases in the society, but also going through one. But I'm very grateful to that gentleman because that's the time I decided that I'm going to set up my own company. There's always a silver lining. Absolutely. 100%. And we have your former boss to thank for making a lot of other companies out there practice fair employment practices. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I'm quite grateful to him, Adrian. You're totally right. There's always a trigger and that was my trigger, you know. You've been in the recruitment business for quite some time now. And you've said before in previous interviews that the recruitment process for companies, especially large ones, can be tedious, can be biased, can be inefficient. Give us a sense of when you realize that. I'm actually not an HR person. I studied to be an electronics engineer, but the whole field of people, that just excited me a lot. During the recruitment search company, and we operated from five continents, so we had the exposure of working in different cultures, different markets, and different perspectives. But one thing was common throughout, and that was the huge subjectivity of hiring. A lot of hiring was done in the early days of my business. It was so much around the gut feel, which 
which school you come to, what common hobbies you have. Cognitive biases started to become very apparent to me. Mm. And it used to kind of feel very bad when a very good candidate would get rejected. And that's why I would start taking it quite personally. There is this candidate who is very deserving and he or she is being excluded from the process. Mm. I think that started to kind of pile up a little. And I felt that it's not just about doing the right thing. It also doesn't make business sense when you start losing mm. good people or you start hiring the wrong people for the wrong reasons. And for no fault of anybody, these are very implicit biases. There are 12 cognitive biases like halo effect, which means you glorify the candidate more than they are or so many other biases. So I think that's when you start feeling that, okay, there is a huge impact that can be created by making the art of hiring into a science. So mm. how do you scale that? removing of that subjectivity and those biases at scale right. across the organizations, across your recruiters and so on. Yeah. And how has the AI and the technology aspect actually helped to improve or streamline that process? As we can all imagine during the traditional era, things may be very manual. You require a lot of people to really all hands on deck in order to go through all the candidates. How has technology changed things or even streamlined that? When you have uh, humans at a particular stage of hiring, there are bound to be biases. So what we decided to do with Zopa was decide what are the factors of recruitment that can be done better by the machine and where is it that you want to bring the humans at the right stage. So the value add of humans and executives is much higher for meaningful relationships and so on. For example, for shortlisting, it's all done by the machine. So it brings out the best elements of the candidate and gives you the matching, not just for the way they can do the job or the skills, but also the compatibility with the organizations. It goes beyond being excluded either by name or by gender or ethnicity, or mm. you may not be from the right school tier. And these are all biases. The machine is very, very practical. They just look at the fact that you can do the job, so we should shortlist you. So it takes you to the next stage. The whole idea that screens you in and doesn't screen you out. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, Nina, I feel like I don't really have a sense of how AI is actually used in a specific setting. For instance, I read that the machine basically predicts based on what skills you have. It can obviously pick up keywords from your CV. And there was something called predictive loyalty as well. So I'm not sure I understand how machine works with man to figure this thing out. Give us an example. If I sent you my CV, what would you be picking up? It's a great point, Crispina. So I just want to give you a little background on how these scores have been created. So it's all around data. Mm. AI is nothing but around data science. So the first thing first is you need to have a very, very large source of data, which is clean, unbiased and does not create errors. So first thing was that the 14 years of my previous company, we had a lot of data and it's not just about just CVs or just jobs. Right. It's about time series, mm. right? Like who got shortlisted, who got rejected, what were the reasons, mm. if they joined, did they stay with the company? So you need the full time series. That's the first step of it. So we created the first set of algorithms based on those patterns. Right. Clearly, we were not working in all possible industries. So we felt, how do we make it unbiased and scalable? So we tested our algorithms on more than 100 million public data. Mm. So this whole process of research and development took more than a year and a half for us to kind of reach that level of millions and millions and millions of data points. 
Now, once you do that, then we started to do some beta testing. So to your question, Crispina, I'll tell you how it would work for you as a candidate. You see a job, you apply, your CV comes in and there might be some questions that you may have to answer. These could either be through a chatbot, but it's a very seamless process. Mm -hmm. So you submit your application. When it comes to our end on the recruiter side, they will see your skills. Now, you mentioned the word keywords. So this is where... Zopa is very different from a lot of other systems out there. So we don't do matching based on keywords. So we use a technology called natural language processing. And I'll tell you, this is where the first aspect of screening people comes in. Mm. A traditional recruiter, and I'm not saying everybody does that, when you manually screen a CV, if I say I need somebody with data science, Unless the word data science appears, that CV is going to get rejected by a traditional recruiter in a lot of cases. Now, what AI does, it looks at all the peripheral skills. So let's say you've done mathematics and statistics. So AI actually looks at all the peripheral possibilities of the skills and says you are capable of doing this particular job, even though you don't have a data science. So there's a chance of you getting upskilled from what you're doing to becoming a data scientist. So, you know, it kind of expands the talent pool. And this is where I mean about screening people in rather than excluding them. So this is just one of the examples. To your other question, how do you predict stability and performance? (laughs) Again, it is all big data based, Mm -hmm. right? So what's going to happen is, so let's say that we are hiring for a broadcaster. So it will look at your CV and it will match in the millions and millions and millions of data. It will look at other people who are just like Crispina, similar experience, similar job, And then it will start benchmarking you against the big data. So it's kind of a comparison. And then what's been your stability compared to the cohort? Mm -hmm. And what's been your progression compared to the cohort? So are you above par? Are you at par? Are you below par? So it's just an indication on if the industry has moved in a particular way. It is total math. It is nothing but mathematics. Exactly. So mathematical. So that's what predictive means. Okay, she stayed in the job for maybe five years longer than the general average. Exactly. So she's likely to stay in this job. Okay, hire her. That kind of thing. Exactly. You put it very well, by the way. (laughs) Hi, my name is Sarah Alcaldi, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Money Talks. Yes, we will be talking about money, but more than that, we'll also be talking about life, personal choices, lucky breaks, and how money is the thread running through it all. So look out for our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Given the application of AI in recruitment and for the job seekers out there, should they approach their resume a bit differently? In the days when keywords were still the norm, people would just stuff their resume with keywords. So if I'm applying for a Java developer, I just put Java, Java 10 times (laughs) in hope that I'll outrank everyone else. But AI is intelligent enough to know that you are trying to game the system. So having said that, should job seekers approach their resume differently in order to make sure that they are not misrepresented? Um... 
I would say no. So resume bias is another bias we are trying to tackle. Some people are very good at writing a fantastic resume and some are not. So that's the other bias that we want to tackle. The thing is with AI, it doesn't look at your flowery language or doesn't look at how many times you mentioned Java in that. It's also going to correlate to the projects that you've done, right? Like, so it's going to make a link. Mm. Now, these are very difficult things to do humanly. Like you would land up spending 30 minutes on one CV and then imagine if you have to scan through 100 CVs, you can well imagine 30 minutes times 100 CVs, right? But AI is able to do it in a matter of a second. So to your question, Adrian, and I think this is a question that a lot of people ask me that how do we frame our resume so that AI can pick it up? And I say, don't do that because just keep it simple. Say it the way it is, because at the end of the day, let me tell you the positives, because one, you will get screened very quickly. And even if you make it through the first screen, it's going to catch up with you at some point of time. So you'll end up wasting your time and the recruiter's time. So especially in Zopa's platform, there is no one stage that decides your future. Mm. It's a scorecard. So this is just the first level. And the reason we do this is more to screen people in rather than screen them out. So a traditional recruiter would tend to make a short list from 100 into a 10 list because it's humanly not possible to start. But with AI, if you have 100 candidates, all 100 get a better chance. But at some point of time, because it's not just one stage, it's going to go through another stage of filtering, which is all automated. So somewhere it's going to get caught. So it's better, be honest. And secondly, you want to survive in that job. Even if you get that job and you don't do a good job, job. In today's climate, there is no free lunch, right? Like it's going to catch up with you very quickly. So you're not going to be happy and your employer is not going to be happy. So it's not about cheating the machine. You're just cheating yourself in the end. You just have to be honest as you always are. Absolutely, Crispina. Yeah. Exactly. And there is that ideal job for everyone. And I think we should aim to find that one because it's all about being happy at work and doing what you love. It's better to take that little bit more time and pain. Okay. To arrive at that, you obviously work with a slate of very big clients. And you mentioned this, there are certain jobs in which AI can work perfectly and because the parameters are all there, the data is all there and it's quite clear. Do you think that it applies to all jobs like nurses, teachers? There are some jobs which AI doesn't really pick up. What do you think? It's a very good point. And I would think that AI right now, even with our own platform, is very, very good with people who have a resume, you know, mm -hmm. because that's a starting point, or somebody who has the access to internet and so on. And But let's look at casual workers, builders, or let's look at drivers yeah. and so on. They would typically just pick up your phone. They don't have a resume. So I think these same algorithms are not going to apply. And, you know, we are working on that model as well, where it is going to be more of a conversation mm -hmm. with the candidate rather than a resume. So we have a conversational chatbot which starts engaging with them and starts understanding what is it that they are looking at to so collect all those data points, create a persona, and then match them with the job. So you're 100% right. Not everything has a resume, and that's not the start and the end of everything. Absolutely right. Yeah, I have to be honest that my experience with chatbots usually isn't very pleasant. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Yeah, so I'd really rather talk to a human being, frankly. I agree. But I understand. I know that in today's day and age, especially for certain jobs, I mean, you're getting hundreds of resumes. It's really just not possible for one person to sift through them. Adrian has been in the recruitment field. Oh, yes. And because of that, recruiters tend to speed up in the first level screening. In fact, I remember there's a study that shows 
recruiter actually spend about seven to nine seconds doing the first cut of each resume that they receive. And you can imagine seven to nine seconds, honestly, you are literally, as what Nina mentioned, you're screening people out. You're not trying to bring in more. You just want to create a small short list so that you can move on to the next project. Absolutely. No, thanks for validating my point, Adrian. (laughs) (laughs) People talk about this all the time, about how machines are replacing human intervention, human judgment, etc., So there must be some downside, right? And the two have to work together. So human interference, obviously, is still very critical. You have to be in the room where you can see someone. Oh, yes. Their body language, how they answer a question, whether they're confident, whether they're nervous, etc. So is that still your goal standard of saying, okay, this is the guy I want? 100%. Like I said, all we are doing is just moving the blocks of the various processes in the recruitment. So in the first few stages where machines can do a better job, let machines do that, but let them complement and help and augment with the humans. So ultimately, 100%, Crispina, you cannot replace 100% recruitment just by machine, right? right? Unless it's a very transactional job or it's just a project that you're trying to do and it's just a skill base. But if you're hiring somebody for your company with long term aspirations of making that association, but bringing in the recruiters at the right time will not only save their time, remove the waste from hiring, but it will also help them focus instead of doing the manual work in the beginning of the process and spending time in just seven seconds, like Adrian said, in in scanning a resume, let the machines do that so that at least the shortlist that comes to your table, you are focused, you're maintaining relationships. And we've realized that the candidate experience is such a big thing at the moment, not just today, but it's always been. But now people are beginning to realize that employer branding is very, very directly proportional to the way the candidate experiences the recruitment process in your company. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, 60% of candidates will say that they will not accept the job or they will not recommend a particular company to somebody else if they've not had a good experience with that company. It has a lot of cascading effect. Point is, let's use the technology so that not only we focus on the recruiter's pains, but let's also focus on the candidate's pains and searching for a job is not an easy fit. So I think it matters on both the ends. Mm -hmm. In my research for this call, I actually also came across this article about Amazon using AI in recruitment and somehow the AI actually became very biased, (laughs) which led to the AI only recommending white men from Ivy League University to the next level. And eventually they can the whole thing. I'd like your take on this. What do you think actually went wrong? And for companies who are still keen to implement AI in their recruitment process, what can they do to prevent that from happening? You know, I love this anecdote because almost in every chat I get asked this, that why are you different from what Amazon is doing? I'll tell you the couple of things that went wrong with Amazon's AI. One, I want to first start with the point that AI on its own is never positive or negative or sinister or unbiased, right? It's the humans that create it at the end of the day. So it's the mindset of the people. Ultimately, those algorithms are created by humans. So a couple of things went wrong. One is that it was only built around Amazon's data. So think about it. If you're doing something wrong, you're going to continue doing something wrong, right? So the point is, if you're building it just on Amazon's pattern of hiring, which is what appeared in the AI, you're going to continue making that mistake. And this is where the difference is that the quality of data is just so critical. It is not an exaggeration where people say that data is the next oil because the quality of data, the quality of time series, how you've removed the noise from it, how you've removed the biases from it is just so critical. Secondly, you cannot have a sample bias 
so a lot of companies say, can you customize the score so that it suits our previous hiring pattern? And we said, we are happy to create an additional score just for you to see. But the point is, if you just rely on that, if you're making a mistake, you're going to continue making that mistake because you don't know what you don't know. The big advantage with big data and AI is that you get an outside-in approach. You get to see what is the larger picture rather than looking at it from inside out. I hope I'm making sense. So what you put in is what matters, essentially. I love the way you simplify everything, Crispina. <laughs> Absolutely. You're totally right. I tend to go on my little bit of my engineering <laughs> spiel. But yeah, no, 100%. That is what it is. And I just want to add a point here that now companies and countries have started to realize that there has to be some governance around AI. When I started the company, my biggest mission was around the purpose of not excluding people, not excluding women, women after a break, not excluding minorities. But that purpose obviously has to become commercial as well. But now, countries and organizations are beginning to kind of give a lot of focus on governance around AI. How do we know that your AI is ethical? Mm. And I'm really proud to say as a Singaporean company, we are the first HR tech company in the world to get the AI verify status, which talks about our AI being ethical, responsible, and explainable. Right. And I think those are the three things that are really, really important. Your AI should not be a black box. So my guidance to companies should be that does the AI explain why you're making a decision? Because that is really, really important. Secondly, is it responsible? How do you know that it is not creating a bias against any particular segment of society? And it has to be ethical. At the end of the day, the purpose has to be about inclusivity rather than screening people out. And I know earlier on you mentioned even though companies may be using AI to do recruitment, you don't really have to format or lay out your resume in a very different manner. But having said that, resume ultimately will still land into the hands of hiring managers or recruiters. Human beings will be reading that resume. Based on your decade of experience in recruitment as well as the millions of data sets of resume that you've seen, are there still some common best practices you can share with our audience, especially those who are new to the job market? Sure. I would say keep it simple. Gone are the days where you would get a brownie point for beautiful graphics and amazing layouts. I think majority of recruitment ATS platforms now go through a parser. So make it parser friendly so that there are no errors in reading your. So keep it simple. Keep it honest. Just say it the way it is. Take a look at the job that you are applying for because you may have like a standard stock resume. However, you may have a strength or a skill which you may not have mentioned. For example, you play the guitar and now you are uh, applying to Disney Studios for an accountant. I'm just giving you a random example. But the point is you should bring it out. There is an affiliation that you have and you may not have mentioned it in your stock resume. So do look at the job. And if you feel that there is something that I may not have mentioned in my stock resume, bring that in because I think everything counts. But be honest. Keep it simple. Be honest. And it's going to get caught at some point of time. So don't exaggerate. Yeah, I've seen some resumes which are like pages long, all kinds of causes <laughs> that goes back. I don't know. I have heard from people, especially fresh out from school, they'll be asking me things like, for resume, do I just keep it at two pages? Should I not put photo in? Should I put photo in? All this seems to be still up for debate. Nina, in your opinion, does all this really matter? Must it be strictly two pages? Is a photo a strict no? And are there any other myth that you'd like to dispel? With the machines, the thing is now it doesn't matter whether you have a two-page resume or a three-page because ultimately the machine that's reading it. So that's not going to screen you out. But my point is that the industry gold standard is around two and a half pages max. But again, if you're a fresher and you don't have much to fill it in, you don't have to just write 
for the sake of filling in two and a half pages. Even a one page of an amazing resume is good enough. I think you brought in a very good point about photographs. Now, what we do in our platform, there is something called as a masking feature. So a lot of companies who are really trying to propagate that inclusive hiring switch on that masking feature. And what happens is the name, anything that kind of signifies who you are, where you come from, disappears. Wow, really? Yes, it's called the masking feature. So you don't know who you're shortlisting. So the machine is shortlisting it blind and the recruiter has to give their scores before they can actually see the identity of the person. Mm. I think the world is moving towards that now. Mm. There is no need to put a photograph. I think ultimately hiring, and my hypothesis is that the future of hiring is going to be skills-based. If you can do the job, that is what counts. And if you can do that well, that counts even more. I was part of the Singapore delegation last two days. We went to the West Midlands and UK to Birmingham, there was just so much talk around skill-based hiring and how the biases around schools and the tier of schools Mm. and IB scores and GCSE scores are going to become less prominent. And I'm not undermining the four years degree courses and stuff, but my point is there's going to be more inclusivity for people who tend to kind of not believe in the traditional four years, but have the skills and are really passionate about. So we met a lot of AR, VR people yesterday. We met a lot of metaverse who had not completed a formal education or don't come from a prime tier one college. On one hand, yes, there is this whole bias around which school you come from, what hobbies you've got and the economic background and all of these. We might raise an eyebrow on that, but these things happen. So I think it's lovely if the world can be very, very inclusive and nobody's left behind, especially the way technology is changing rapidly. We do know that there is a section of society that is going to be left Mm -hmm. behind. So I think it's just so important to focus on the skills and really kind of think now about how we're going to upskill and reskill some of these people, which technology is going to leave behind. I love this idea of not having the photograph. I always hated that part of putting in my resume. (laughs) (laughs) Before we let you go, Nina, tell us one thing you've learned about work and career that you will tell your kids. I would tell them, love what you do. You join a company, not just for the work that it's offering you, but also the purpose behind. Purpose is what gets you out of the bed in the morning. So it's really important that you stand behind the purpose. You join a company or build a company which has a purpose. My husband is a traditional corporate person. I am always been an entrepreneur. So I'm always encouraging them to do their own thing. He on the other side is giving the upsides. So there's always that thing. But ultimately, we both agree on one point. Whatever you do, love it. Do it with full work ethic. Just immerse yourself in your work, but make sure that there is a purpose and you're making the bigger impact on the people around you and yourself. Wow. Thank you, Nina. So finding the right talent for your company can be quite a challenge. A candidate might look great, sound confident and say all the right things. But when it comes to doing the job in the long run, they might turn out to be a poor fit. So machines can help humans decide how and who to recruit. But perhaps something as old as the hills is still relevant. The importance of meeting someone, looking at their body language, looking at them in the eye. Asking them interesting questions and not a list of questions from a textbook and seeing how they behave. Until next time, thanks for joining me, Crispina Robert. And Adrian Tan. For this edition of Work It. The team behind this podcast are Daniel Lee, Crispina Robert, Jacqueline Chan and Audrey Wan. 